Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. Welcome this morning to Redemption Hill. Uh, It's good to be here. Somebody asked me if I was wearing a Halloween costume that was Idaho Dad, and I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm wearing. This is, I, I play one on television, too. All right, well, welcome this morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Robert Frazier. I'm one of the elders here. And during, during worship, one of my kids had a fever last night, so I was hanging out in an office back here with him. So I missed, I missed the worship. So hopefully, you know, this is still good for you. I didn't get to have Jesse's uh, moment this this morning, but it seemed powerful. I could feel it in the, in the room. It was very powerful. All right, so we are in the middle of a series. There we go. Whew. Couldn't see anybody. Uh, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling the Gospel According to Jesus, where we're looking specifically at what Jesus said was the story of the gospel. What does it mean to follow him in this story and to find good news from God? Last week, we talked a little bit about the setting of the story, like walking into, figuring out what, what kind of story are we walking into? What kind of story are we setting ourselves into when we join in the gospel story? And this week, we're going to introduce the characters of the story by walking through the whole plot of the story, okay? So we're going to go through the whole plot of the narrative of redemptive history from the pre-creation to the New Jerusalem in 35 minutes. I see some incredulous faces. I think we can get there. So no questions. Keep your hands down. We've got a lot to get through. Uh, So we're, we're doing this work of learning and telling the story but it's to understand the good news of Jesus, this gospel according to Jesus. We have to understand what came before and why it's good news because we focus on Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the Holy Spirit coming, and that's kind of the whole story. But we miss out on the why. We miss out on why it's good news and where it comes from. So buckle up. Let's go. Creation. I got a slide for you even. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a radical start to the story. It shouldn't be a surprise to any of you. We talk about this pretty often. This is the beginning of all theological inquiries saying, I am not God. He is God. He's the one who created all things. I'm not God. And so we trust. We look at him and say, okay, God, you you are everything. And it's a radical start to the story because it's not saying in the beginning, God made the Assyrians or in the beginning, God made the Chaldeans, or in the beginning, God made this tribe or this people. It starts out, at the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a stake in the ground where God is saying, Elohim himself is creator. He is no mere tribal God who can be ignored. This is the almighty creator, the sovereign God of all the universe. The very first 
tellers of the story were staking a claim that this God, Yahweh, the one that the Jews worshipped, was the one who, who deserved all praise and all adoration. We find in Genesis chapter 1 that we were made for some specific purposes. Number one, we're made for connection. We're made for connection with God. We were made for, for partnership with God and with each other. We have a role to play in this world that starts with partnering with God in exploring and cultivating the world that he's made. We were made to live in complete connection with one another. We see with Adam and Eve that they were created for one another as a gift to work together as partners. And before the fall, they lived in this true harmony of partnership, of belonging to one another, of submission to one another. They were made to love and to care for each other. They were made to care and cultivate all of creation. And they were made to be in connection with creation. They were made to to live in harmony with what God had made. And then we get to the bad news, which is the fall. We're gonna we're gonna move through, I promise. I got I got thirty minutes, so we gotta we gotta hustle. Okay, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and then it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and then the eyes of both were opened. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So much has been written, so much has been spoken about the fall, but it's still a place where the fall itself feels like this, this mystical thing that we don't quite understand. And so I'm going to take just a couple of seconds to unpack it because it's a really important part of the story. Without the fall, the story doesn't matter. Without the fall, the rest of the story doesn't make sense. The fall itself is the inciting incident that, that brings the story to a head that says, that says we need to be saved, we need to have justice, we need for things to be reconciled. Before that... The fall, have you ever seen, uh, there's, these, there's these memes that are like stories, stories that if you change one thing, it changes everything. And it's like the, the Star Wars story where Anakin says, can't I just <laughs> marry her and get proper health care so that my twin babies can live? And the Jedi say, okay. And then it has the, the end of the Star Wars story, because that's, that's the end of it. You don't, you don't have the rest of the story if Anakin is able to just get proper medical care and marry the, the daughter, the, the, the wife of his, or the mother of his children. Without the fall, the rest of the story doesn't make sense here. What's happening in this fall? Well, the, the fall, this story is about active rebellion, okay? Active rebellion. It's saying, I don't want what God has for me. Adam and Eve... They are just like all of us. So don't look at Adam and Eve and blame them because you would have done the exact same thing. And, and we live in a time where people look at sin in the fall and we, we go, that doesn't make sense that two people sin and then the rest of the world is condemned to death. And we look at this story and say, that doesn't make sense at all. Why should we all suffer for the rebellion of these two? I have no problem understanding the fall from an intellectual standpoint because we relive the story of the garden day in and day out. 
Every single day, each one of us, God invites us to connection with him. We reject him. We go our own way and we do our own thing. And then we bring suffering to ourselves. And we bring suffering to our families. We bring suffering to the world around us by the result of our sinfulness. I really don't think we have to convince the world of the fallenness of the world. We open our eyes and we look around and we say, things aren't as they should be. We should look at the world and say, this is exactly how we've made it. When we bristle at our parents or our boss or our, even our kids telling us what to do, we feel conflict inside of us. That's the same thing that Adam and Eve felt. God said, you can have everything you want. I have given you all things except refrain from this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And with God, like with, with any of us who, who might be or have healthy parents, he actually wants to care for us. But before we receive his wisdom and his care, and this is not going to be good news, but this is reality. Before we actually want what God wants, we all have to suffer through the result of our sin. You actually can't want what God wants until you sin. Until you experience the death and destruction and brokenness of this world that comes through sin, you cannot experience the love and care and oneness with the Father. And this might feel like a radical claim to you, but we had to go through the fall to find out what God really means to us. The fall was a vital part of the story that actually had to happen. Until we suffer, until we suffer the pain of our own sin, until we suffer the pain of other people's sin. Now, some of you are <clears throat> not very wise, and you have to suffer your own sin. Just raise your hand if you're one of those people. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> I like that there's some honesty in the room. But some of you are like, I've got to suffer to learn. And you, you have to make the worst possible choice to find out that it's the worst possible choice. And some of the rest of you, you watch those people and you say, I can learn from their suffering and I don't want what they're doing. And, and there's, there's two types of people and some of those people you should do what they do and some of those people you should not do what they do. But this is the story of the fall is that there is no timeline in which we don't have the fall. The fall is just baked into who we are as a humanity and is baked into the idea of relationship. Because God made us for this connection with, the, with one another, to have choice is to choose what is wrong. Unless there is choice, there is no ability for us to live in relationship. Uh, this isn't, I don't think this is as com complex as we imagine. If there's no way for us to rebel, then we're these automatons programmed to love, programmed to obey with no will and no ability to really love. Love itself requires choice. And this is just preternatural to humanity. And this itself is a love story that we're telling because God is this jilted lover, a spurned romantic, rejected by humanity, and he launches a plan that just might work to win back his one true love. This is where we find out why we care about the story. Because a lot of these stories would be different without that one choice. And here's the thing, if it hadn't been for Adam and Eve, it would have been their kids. 
we don't need to convince the world of sin. And actually, what, the, what Jesus tells us is that even the one who brings conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit, who's constantly bringing conviction of sin to the world, so that none of us are satisfied in the broken state that we live in. Everyone on, on earth lives in the destructive effects of sin and brokenness every day. And what we need to do is help the world see that they need to be transformed so that the world can be healed. Each of us needs to see our part in the sinful, broken world so that we might become a part of the renewed creation that God wants to create. And so we have a broken connection between us and God. And what he does is he says we cannot have access to the source of life eternally if we're not living deeply connected with him. Because if we live eternally separated from him, he doesn't get what he wants. And this story is all about God getting what he wants. Him doing whatever it takes to get the object of his affection to fall in love with him again and to find the life that we're all looking for. God wants to restore a broken connection between us and creation. It says in Genesis chapter 3 that we're going to toil to bring forth fruit from the world. We're going to feel every, every day when you're pulling weeds in your garden, every day when you're struggling to get to work, every day when you're fighting cold weather and hot weather, every day when you're fighting to bring forth fruitfulness from this world. It needs to remind us that things are not how they were meant to be. We need to realize that there's a broken connection between each other. After the fall, that's where we see this hierarchy of relationships between men and women, which is the tragedy that we've been living with for 2,000 years is that we were made for partnership and under sin and under condemnation and death we created this hierarchy of relationships where women will be subjugated to men and we, we only see in God's kingdom work where men and women become partners again something we believe really strongly here at Redemption Hill we see these imbalanced relationships strife, strife enmity, pain blame and shame and the fall tells us things are not how they should be and so God says you know what I'm going to let them have their way and we move on to the flood narrative and the rescue of Noah in Genesis chapter 9 and God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth somewhere along the way people started believing that this story was a myth or that this story couldn't possibly be true. And I gotta tell you, there is almost nothing in the ancient world that's better attested than this event. If you've studied any ancient Near Eastern history, every piece of writing we have before 1500 BC from China to India to the Middle East to Africa to, to Northern Europe to North America to South America. Okay, we're talking like writings literally that span the entire globe in this time period around 7,000 BC, sorry, 7,000 years ago, about 5,000 BC, there was this literal worldwide flood. And it, it was probably right at the end of the last major ice age where some glacier lakes basically you know, what, what happens during an ice age is that it pulls all the moisture out of the ocean and dumps it onto the, 
the ice caps on on the top and then uh, on the top and bottom of the world. And then what happens as ice ages melt is that basically they create these glacier lakes that hold back water, and then all of a sudden they flood, which is most of the geography that we live in is a giant flood from Lake Bonneville at that same time, okay? You look across the world, this happened. There was a giant flood that wiped out most of humanity, and that's why we don't have any history beyond 7,000 years ago. And what we see is that Noah plays this part in the story where he is a new kind of Adam. And, and you look at the ancient world, you look at what happened before Noah, and you tell me that God wasn't justified in saying, maybe we should start over. God gives humanity over to our sin, and the result is a world that's not worth living in. It's, it's like, do you ever have days when you just don't want to parent? And you just... You turn on a game and you sit on your couch and it doesn't matter how loud the other room gets. You just ignore it. Anybody? Is, is that just me? Okay, that's okay. thank you. I'm, I like those hands back there. I, I see that hand. Clint shuts himself in the garage. I, I see that hand. <laughs> um, and what happens is my house becomes an unlivable place. <laughs> and my children... If, if left to their own devices, I'm certain one of them would die in 48 hours. Like, there's no question one of them would die. And, and, and sometimes what I'll do is, like, I'll, it'll just get to a point where I actually have to deal with it. Or Malia's coming home soon, <laughs> and I have to go, okay, I've got to deal with this. And I walk back, and I, I go, kids, stop what you're doing. Look around at what's happening. Is this what you want? Is this the kind of house you want to live in? Is this the kind of brother you want to be? You know, like you just, you just let them ask that question. And what na- our natural state left to ourselves is chaos and destruction. But if you ask your kids what, they re- what, what your oldest daughter will say is, Dad, would you help us? <laughs> Dad, I want you to help. You need to parent, you know, so somebody's got to come in and show up. Um, and when you look at the flood, like this is, this is God saying, I can't allow this to happen any longer. And when you look at the ancient world, it was nothing like our world. There was no morality. There was no government. It was just basically chaos. Violence, death, rape, sex. Like it was just the most awful world you could imagine living in. And God says, It's time to remember what I planned. It's time to go back to what we had hoped for. You see, every single Near Eastern culture, from the Epic of Gilgamesh and Utnapishtim and the Aztec floods and the stories of um, Titlaquan warning the man named Nota. Now listen, like this is crazy. Literally, across an ocean, the Aztecs, they have a man who warned the man named Nota, which is like, like from a linguistic standpoint, so close to Noah of a coming flood. You have the ancient Greeks. Oh, man. Sorry. I have a different way of doing this today, and I got a little lost. Okay.
All right. So you got the Aztecs, and then you got the ancient Greeks, the son of Prometheus. He constructs an ark for himself and his wife. You have Hindu, Buddhist, Chinese, Norse, Australian, Aborigines. Like, literally, like, Australia has this same story happening in the same time frame. They all coincide with this one event. And this is a, a, an important moment because it's a, it's a restart. It's a refresh. And, and, and here, it would, here would have been my hope if I were God. I would have been like, okay, we're going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to get some new kids. They're going to be better this time. I'm going to be a better dad this time. We're going to do it right this time. We're going to figure it out. And then what happens? Well, let's keep reading. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the era of the patriarchs where God says, I'm going to restart, but I have, I have a plan. And I'm not saying that God like changed his mind. I'm not saying that God didn't have this plan from the beginning. I'm saying the plan is starting to get revealed in the story. God has a plan to restore all things. And now it's not a free-for-all. He has set aside for himself a people. And really, the hero here is revealed is that God is going to set aside for himself a family who will be the bearers of his promise, who will be the ones who take on his judgment, the ones who will be disciplined to become a people who belong with him, and they will themselves give hope to a world that needs it. Now there is a hero in the people of Israel who will bear the promise over generation after generation that God has not forgotten the world, that God himself is preparing to set all things right. And he's saying that I will give you blessing and I will give you a promise, and this is the beginning of the resurrection story that we've all been hoping for. And so God places his people. He takes them from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is modern-day Iraq. He brings them across the Arabian Peninsula and drops them into Canaan. Now, Canaan is um, not their land. They, they have, there are other people who are inhabiting their land, probably a, a group of tribes that have these lands. And Abraham's shown up with himself and this small little family. And the reality is that Abraham and a small little family are threatened almost immediately by the surrounding tribes because they don't belong there, because they aren't family. And in the ancient world, you had to have family to protect you. You had to have alliances with other tribes that would protect your family. That's when the beginning of kind of the nation state is happening. And so what does God do? He takes his people and he says, I'm going to put you in a protective cocoon for 400 years, okay? He moves them down to Egypt to prepare them for what's to come. Exodus chapter 7 says, and still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So God takes his people and he puts them in Egypt and they start out in this land of Goshen, which is itself actually a pretty beautiful, fertile place along the banks of the Nile that was perfectly built to care for a people. And what happened was, the family of Abraham thrived. They grew and grew and grew so that they would become a people who could sustain themselves. They would be a tribe that could belong in Canaan. And the only way that they would have left 
They would have stayed in Goshen forever. Did you know that? Israel would have stayed there forever if the pharaohs hadn't started abusing them. Which is kind of a crazy thing to think that it really requires pretty drastic action for God to move us along in the story. And we see this in stories all the time. Uh, we use devices to move characters from one place to another. And this, this seems like a pretty terrible device to use, but it required God to make it an inhospitable place for them to belong, to move them where he wanted them to be in this land of Canaan. And so God protects his people, even though they're under the judgment of Egypt. He protects them so that they will grow in peace, so that they will learn to work, and become a people who are known for doing what they need to do to survive, that they would learn to persevere through hardship. Who here wants their kids to have really hard jobs as teenagers? This is, this is Abraham's teenage years, okay? This is the family of Abraham's teenage years. God was preparing them for what they would need to become the kind of people who could persevere so that they could prepare to be dropped right into the middle of history. So, we all know the story. God raises up Moses. Moses leads his people out by force from Egypt. God has to enter in and make Egypt allow them to leave. They go out into the desert. In Exodus chapter 13 said, But God let the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. What God is doing here is he's taking them out into the desert for their, for their last bit of preparation. And we do this with our kids, too. We, we, we have to give them that last little push out of the house, right? Now they're ready, they're strong, they know how to survive out in the world, and then we tell them they have to start paying rent. And then all of a sudden, that apartment across the way doesn't seem like such a bad deal at 600 bucks a month or whatever our kids are going to pay for it. And this is what it takes is that God has to push them out, and he, he brings them to the doorway of Israel, and he says, go look at what I've prepared for you. Look at how I've prepared you as a people. They go in. The spies, these 12 spies, come back with literally like, like racks and racks of beautiful overflowing combs of honey and of these, they, they, it says in, in Exodus that the grapes basically fell from the man's shoulders to the ground, these massive clusters of grapes. And they said, actually, we'd rather go back. And so God's got to take them out into the desert and go, are you sure? makes them wander for 40 more years, just a tenth of the time to prepare them for that last bit so that they would be ready, so that they would want what he wants for them. Because we will not want what God wants until we suffer. And then we move into the conquest era of the judges. And then the Lord raises up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. God brings them into this land of Canaan. Canaan... uh, Now, God allowed Canaan to be overtaken by the Israelites because he had a plan for that place. Mostly, this is a fertile ground in the middle of three continents that itself is the center of history. This place is the center of history. Everything goes through this little piece of land that goes from the Nile to the Euphrates. This little strip of land is one of the most important places on the 
face of the earth, and God is planting himself into history so that his people wouldn't be missed. Now, if the Jews had been placed in South Africa, would the world have experienced the blessings that God would prepare for them? Maybe. But God had a plan to place them here in this particular place. And the people of Canaan, if you've read on it, God provided this supernatural judgment for the people of Canaan because of their incredible wickedness. We've talked about it before, but you can read up on it. God wanted to impose his place in history and give his people language, story, and history to draw upon so that all of history would be impacted by this one choice of God. And we're literally watching it still unfold before us today, some 4,000 years later. And this is the pattern that we see in the book of Judges again and again. They conquest, they take over parts of, of the land, and then Israel starts to sin, and God hands them over to oppression by their enemies. Israel repents, cries out to God, God hands them over, uh, God raises up a judge, and, that, and that's a leader, it's usually a military one who's going to rescue them. And then after a period of victory, Israel falls again into sin and idolatry, Again and again, around and around, this is the downward spiraling pattern of the book. And with each cycle, the people find themselves at a darker, more awful level of depravity. And I don't think this is surprising to any of us where these are people who are formed by slavery. They're formed by the desert. And then they go and they settle. And what happens when we settle? We let our guards down. We start looking around and looking for pleasure and for ways to excite ourselves with with our own things, rather than asking God what he desires. And this story plays out again and again. They, they fall into sin. God brings the natural result of their sin is judgment. Judgment then come, makes them call out to God for salvation, and then they move back towards God, and he provides salvation, and they spiral, 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 until they get to a point where they're like, you know what? We're not good at this thing. We're not good at ruling ourselves. We need a king. And so they call for this, this monarch to come. First Samuel 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The people of Israel called out for a king. God gives them a really bad king. That king takes them to some really bad places. Then God gives them a really good king. That king ruins his own life. He's a terrible father. His son is even a worse father. And by the third generation, there isn't a united kingdom anymore. It splits into two. The kingdom is going to be stripped from Saul and given to David because Saul is precisely the kind of king that the people thought that they wanted. One who looked the part. He was tall and handsome and had lots of hair. And yet his heart is far from God and desires to reign independently of God's authority. It's worth noting that Saul's ill-fated reign is a strange kind of grace that God gives his people over and over again. After all, he, he could have just simply rejected their demand for a king to judge us like the nations have. Or he could have let Saul's selfish, godless reign end in the destruction of the nation. But instead, God uses Saul's kingship to teach the people what a king could really be and to prepare them for the coming of a king after his own heart. You see, God gives us what we want so that we'll know it's not what we actually want. And this is the cycle that we live in. 
And so we see a divided monarchy rise up in 2 Kings. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor and the river of Gozan and the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord the things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified cities. They participated in the true evil of the Canaanites that had been driven out. And instead of going to God, they went their own way. And this judgment just is a long time coming for the northern kingdom of Israel. King after king had disobeyed God's word hundreds of years. They'd worship idols to the point of sacrificing their own children. Now, this is where you've got to just open your eyes and say, when there's a nation of people who are sacrificing their own children to get the gods out there to do what they want, God has to intervene. The ancient world was a truly despicable place. That's why God has to bring his judgment is so that the way of the kingdom will transform the world. We come to the fall of Israel. Ezekiel 39:23, And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. So this Assyrian conquest of Israel is total. And Israel, the ten northern tribes, will never exist again as a standalone people. This is what happens when you reject God over and over and over again, is that you get removed from his people. And that should feel like if you're feeling a little worried inside yourself, you should feel that. Because if you reject God, he will not make you belong to him. If you reject God over and over again and say, I want to go my own way, he's not going to grab your hand and bring you along with him. He's going to give you over to what you desire. And Israel itself, the ten northern tribes, are a key example of the way that God will not always continue to fight for you if you continue to reject him. Now, his, his loving kindness is always available to us who, who repent and turn towards him. But Israel itself should be a warning to us all. And through all this, this, this question begins to arise. What about Assyria's idolatry? Assyria was monstrous, and God uses them as his judgment against Israel, but they themselves will not fall under the judgment of the wickedness? Well, this is the question of one of the most famous prophets in the Bible, Jonah, and that's when we see the next part of the story. So fall and exile of Judah in 2 Kings. So we have two, two tribes, two, two, two kingdoms. We have the northern kingdom, which is the ten northern tribes, and the two southern tribes, which were Judah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So there's nothing here but devastation. The temple is destroyed. And the temple was meant to be this symbol of God's presence with the Jews. Its implements and the tools from within the temple, the ones who had been set apart for this holy purpose, they're carried away as trophies to Babylon. And all the rich and the powerful, all those who belong to the ruling class will be taken as slaves back to Babylon. And even the left behind, 
Those who are poor are going to flee as refugees into Egypt. So the land is not just dominated, but it is emptied. The royal palace is burned. Jehoiakim, the king, is taken to Babylon to die. And worst of all, he's the last king in the line of David. And this is a particularly brutal scene, but he watches as all of his sons are slaughtered before him. And then his eyes are put out so that the last thing he ever sees is the death of his line, the end of the dynasty of David, and the failure, or so it seems, of God's promises. But this is not the end of the story. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we see that after a period of from 722 is when the northern tribes are taken over, 586 is when the southern tribes are taken over, and about 80 years later, 70 to 80 years later, they're allowed to return by God's providence. In Nehemiah chapter 1. Remember that the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, and you keep my commandments, you do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, I'm going to gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Ezra and Nehemiah, they were originally combined as one book and intended to be read as a single narrative. And together they tell this story of God returning his exiles from Babylon. Now in Babylon, we have these incredible stories from Daniel of the way that God brought these group of exiles who had been taken from Jerusalem and were living in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, how they flourished and learned how to walk with God in the midst of a terrible situation. That's because God was purifying and preparing them for what would come. And these stories, Ezra and Nehemiah, together tell the story of the returned exiles, how they strive to reestablish the city of Jerusalem and rebuild and purify its temple and raise its wall from ruin. And every step along the way, though, they face difficulty, not just from the outside, but also from their own sin and lethargy. Theologically, the, the books, they make a couple of important points. The first, and probably most immediately, they show that God, does this story feel just crazy to anybody else at this point? Like we're, we're halfway in and we've started with creation, we've dipped down to the fall, and then we've just been muddying along in this story of brokenness from maybe 4,000 BC to now we're at 600 BC. So 3,400 years of just brokenness, 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 and these little blips of righteousness, and then judgment, and righteousness, and judgment, and righteousness, and judgment, and righteousness, and judgment. But God, throughout all of this, is sovereignly orchestrating these events to help this tiny little tribe of people accomplish his goals. And at a deeper level, although the exiles, they do in fact rebuild the temple and the city walls, they will never rule independently in that land again. When you think about it, from that point on, the Jews will never independently rule over that land. They will be overseen by, at first, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and then the Greeks will overtake them, and then the Ptolemaic Greek Empire from Egypt will overtake them, and then the Romans will overtake them, and they will be dominated forever. A thousand years later, when Rome falls, who takes over but the, the Ottoman Turkish Empire and the, the, 
the Muslim hordes will take over Israel. And then even today, it's still contested space 2,000 years later. And yet in the midst of it, all of this, God is at work, sovereignly working through history to prepare the way. They imagined when they came back from exile that it was going to be this glorious restoration of what they had hoped for. They were hoping that they could create a kingdom that would last forever, an empire that would rule over all things. And at the end of the book of Ezra, the temple is still small and unremarkable. And the nation remains under the thumb of a foreign power. And the people are plainly still subject to all the temptations towards sin that resulted in their exile in the first place. And you got to imagine, what hope is there? But it's 10.09, so you're going to have to come back in two weeks <laughs> for the next part. Um, I thought I could do it. I, d- I didn't get close. I'm 40 minutes in, and I'm like halfway through the story. There's just too much good stuff to, to hear here. Now, like, we're going through a lot of history and story, but what I, what I want us to take away from the first half of the story, the band can come up and prepare for um, communion. What I want us to take away here is that we need to look at the history of humanity and see ourselves in it. I want you to place yourself in each part of the story. I want you to place yourself in the fall. I want you to place yourself in the flood. I want you to place yourself in the patriarchs and in the judges and in the kings and in the exile. And I want you to look at it and say, what part would I have played? Right now in my life, am I somebody who is rejecting the way of God or am I somebody who is embracing the way of God? Am I living in exile as one who belongs to the king or am I living in exile as one of the Babylonians? Am I rejecting the sovereignty of God or am I embracing the sovereignty of God? Because God is at work in every part of the story. And if we miss that, we miss out on what he's doing. This is an important survey for us to get a picture of the whole story. So if you're here today, don't miss in two weeks when we're going to wrap wrap this part of the story up. But it's really important for us to see that God is not done and that the story is ongoing. And so what we're going to talk about in two weeks is after this period of silence and waiting, God invites us to the table. He sets a new table for us, invites us to the table. And communion itself is this remembrance. We could, it's, honestly, because where we ended, I want to say we don't get communion this week. <laughs> We're going to remember the absence of God's presence from our lives because that's where we are in the story. Well, I'll let you have communion. Don't worry. I'm, I'm not a monster. Um, but when we receive communion, let's actually today, let's do this. Let's grab the communion elements and let's sit with them during the song. And we're not going to receive them till the very end of the service to remember the waiting that we had to do for God's sovereignty to come. Sound good? All right, so during this song, do a little preparation, come forward and receive the elements. And then after, at the very end of the service, we'll take communion together. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Voices. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.